Welcome to Teach the Word. Thanks for joining today. Hello. Welcome to Teach the Word. Today, going to uh, try to talk about gender. Um, what does the scripture? What kind of things does the scripture have to say about gender? And even uh, how our gender plays itself out. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask, Father God, for your grace, for your power to be made perfect in our weakness, and for us not to misuse your word. So we come crying uh, out, really, because, Lord, we know that um, there's not much of a compass uh, culturally around these topics. You could, you could go anywhere. Everything is up for grabs, actually. And we, we want to faithfully discern your word and your compass as it relates to these topics. So we come asking for your grace and your power in us to see your word for, for what it says and not our own agendas. So we, we ask for your, your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, first off, whoops, hold the cord out. Um, what does the, the Bible say about uh, types of gender? Um, there's a passage where God creates the world, mankind, the human race, and uh, as well as all of the animals. And uh, in all of those uh, creation passages, uh, gender is depicted by... Uh, Binary, um, two two options. Uh, let's look at the man, the creation of the human race passage, in Genesis one. Uh, towards the end of the chapter, then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle." over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created he them. Uh, so it's uh, male and female. So it, it's from the onset, gender set up as a, uh, not so much a, a human choice or a human or a cultural uh, decision, but like a, a binary choice of, of the creator. He has two options, and when he created man, and when he brings people into the world, he has this this two choice thing, and he it's his choice um, to, that he makes. That's not to say that the Bible doesn't recognize the fact that uh, there's other kind of options out there um, besides male and female, but it, it regards all of those as, um, as a, as pieces of a broken world and that, that he wants to one day heal completely and restore. So like, if you look various parts of the Mosaic law, you'll find, uh, you know, we're just staying places where the genders, uh, it's just not clear. Uh, so let's look at Exodus 
1822. Um, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So there's a, a it's acknowledging of the existence. The scripture clearly acknowledges the existence of what we would today in our society call a gender preference. That's where um, someone is choosing has a is, is their their the preference for their gender isn't actually what what they want would think and want their gender to be isn't what their uh, biological uh, organs show. And so that's a variance from the, he created a male-female, so two, two separate genders. It's a, it's a mixture where biologically it's one gender, but uh, psychologically the person holds a different gender or, or wishes to hold a different gender. And uh, that's viewed as a, as a variance that is um, part of, of the brokenness in the world that God has his goal to one day uh, completely heal and restore. Uh, let's look at, there's, there's other options here. That's only one type of a variance. Let's look at the Deuteronomy 22 and 23. You'll see uh, what, what else could you have happen in a broken world. Um, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. So then you have, um, I guess you have the same thing in reverse. You have, and then restated. So it's this uh, preference psychologically or, or expression-wise, culturally, that's not consistent with the biology. Um, that's that's one kind of variance the other one that i was looking for which i think is is i found here is deuteronomy 23 this is where um the biology is unclear or has been mutilated in some way so if you look uh deuteronomy 23 1 he who is emasculated uh by crushing so if, if uh or mutilation somehow cut so that you can't tell what's going on or, or things have been been harmed shall not enter the assembly of the Lord um, you get a similar thing from uh, Jesus when he's talking he, he, he acknowledges a category for um, for uh, this type of category that is set up in the Mosaic law where the, what would show the gender biologically is not uh, very clear or, or has been um, changed. Uh, let's see here. Matthew 19. Eleven through twelve. He's talking about marriage and, and he says you know all all people cannot accept this saying but only those to whom it has been given for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb 
meaning that at birth, something about this child, either you couldn't tell what the gender was or, or it was obscure or, or they had a mixed organs, which is something that happens in a broken world because the, the, there's, there's corruption. And, and that's a really unclear thing. It's not really clear to people. Usually in today's world, the parents can, can have a surgery to, to decide for the child. But in, in, uh, in the ancient world, they were, they were kind of, um, kind of pushed out of society. They were never going to be able to marry and carry on a normal life, uh, like others. So there are some eunuchs who were born this way from their mother's womb, but then there are eunuchs who made by men. And then there's eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it, let him accept it. Uh, so it's a teaching on celibacy, really, but um, it does touch on the on the categories of gender. So just to summarize, uh, seems from from the creation account, you have God setting up gender as as a binary thing. But then you have, as you read through the, the narrative of the Bible, you see the introduction of variances to that, and, and they're all portrayed as part of the brokenness in the world and and you have and also as you read through the narrative of scripture because the, the fall the world is broken but the world's moving towards redemption so you see things like these variances in gender but you see a, a movement towards uh this great and glorious day where um all things will be uh restored so for example uh prophets talk uh, about this coming restoration a lot. Let's look at Isaiah 56. I have written down here, uh, 56, four and five. Let's see what we have here. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I have given them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. So in the restoration, those who, who had uh, issues where they couldn't fit into society because of discrepancies or lack of clarity in their actual biological anatomy are given a place in society better than the place of those whose gender was, was uh, clear um, from not from uh, from birth, so it's it's a restoration. So what was once broken and, and out is now brought in by God into His fold. Um, you know, there's there's a passage in Acts. I think this is that's about uh, you know how. How this starts to happen, in, even in the present world. I mean, we're not with the cross and the, and the going out and the preaching of the gospel. The the restoration has started in a sense, and it's a it's a it's a, it's a mix of already finished but but not yet accomplished, which is which is kind of a 
what do you call it? It was a paradox. But you see, uh, there's a passage where uh, there's this guy who is uh, a eunuch in the queen's court. So we don't know if he got into that position because he, he chose to make himself a eunuch to, you know, mutilate his, his uh, organs. Or he uh, was born such a way and, and that's got him into that path. So he's, he's a high official actually in this the court of a queen of an African nation, Ethiopia. And uh, you see the restorative uh, nature of the gospel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise, go towards the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. So he's the treasurer. And sitting, uh, lost my spot. Uh, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was thus. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, as he went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch says, See, here's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way, rejoicing. So, you see that the power of the gospel to bring, to, to initiate in this restoration. The eunuch leaves this situation full of the joy of the Lord. He's rejoicing. He's He has encountered something better than life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the power that it has. It, it, it really neutralizes all these distinctions. And Paul, you know, these distinctions, these social things, these classes, Paul says this really well, this neutralizing effect of the gospel in Galatians. Um, Galatians 3, uh, verse 20, Galatians 3, 20, right in the right spot, 20, no, 28, sorry. For you, let's start in 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And in Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This, this uh, leveling out of where there was once, uh, you know, yeah, racial prejudice or dis, uh, gender issues of, of um, 
oppression of one gender of the other or of just the exclusion of the abnormalities to the to the side um or what is this slaves and, and masters you know the economic uh option for economic oppression the, the gospel comes in the church comes in and and it, and it levels that out and it brings uh one the, the idea is it one day restores society and in the end, there's society is not restored and the church is not in any way perfect, but we have a foretaste of the coming restoration is the, the idea. So that's mainly it to, to, to just summarize. You got the Bible speaking of, uh, gender as a, not really a cultural setup or, or a personal choice, but it's a, it's a binary thing. It's really two binary choice and it's it's a choice of god at creation male female and um of course there's variants which we we all know about and see in our world uh but um that variance is viewed as part of the brokenness in the world that god is in the active business of restoring back to how he back to his created order back to perfection in his eyes and um that he uh, he will accomplish in the end, and and you can t taste of it now through the gospel of Jesus Christ is the uh, is the wonderful thing, the beautiful thing of the message. So <laughs> that's the setup. In that in that setup, the Bible then goes on to have a lot to say about those two genders, um, male and female. Now there are different. ways of, of looking at it or um, interpreting the data, but just try to, we'll try to be fair to what the, the script the text of scripture is saying, kind of let it speak for itself. So we know that um, Jesus does a lot with uh, interacting with women. Um, so if you look at uh, a couple passages in the gospels, you, uh, get the idea that he has women uh, as his disciples, which uh, maybe not definitively clear, but it definitely sounds like it. And let's, let's read those passages. Luke um, 8, 1 through 3. Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who, were, who provided for him of their substance. So these are part of the people that are traveling with Jesus throughout when he goes from city to city, town to town. And it sounds like they're part of the wider group of his disciples, uh, uh, maybe not in the inner circle of the, the twelve, but but definitely, uh, he he's there's a argument to be made that Jesus may be countercultural with how he's uh, interacting with and dealing with women. Uh, in Mark, you get this reference to uh, his disciples are his his mother and brothers. I think it's in Mark twelve forty six through fifty. 
Where is that? That's not right. I think I'm talking about Matthew. That's what I want to be. Matthew code. 20. 46. Matthew 12, 46. Yeah, so while Jesus was talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So it's the idea if he's, when he stretches out his hand to his uh, disciples and he says, Here is my mother and my brothers. Many take that to mean that there's men, there's women and men in the disciple group. Otherwise, why does he say the, the two genders, mother, brothers? But, you know, that could be an inference. But uh, the Luke passage, I think, is a little bit clearer on that. Of course, he interacts with uh, women on uh, dozens of, of occasions. You know, there's only so many stories in the Bible, but the, the writers choose to include um, a lot of Jesus's healings or, you know, teaching moments where he's, he's interacting with uh, women. So let's just look at, you know, if you look at Matthew, Matthew 9, flip back a few pages, you've got, uh, there's a, a girl, a little girl who's uh, restored to life and a woman who's healed of uh, the girl dies, and he brings her back to life. And in the same story, this is there's a, a woman who who is healed of bleeding that she, issues she's had for twelve years. Uh, that's that's Matthew nine, eighteen, and onward. Uh, there are many instances uh, of those interactions. I mean, I could just I got a list here. So yeah, Mark chapter one thirty and thirty one. He Mark 5, 25 through 34, Luke 7, 11 through 17, 13, 10 through 7, John 2, 1 through 11, John 8, 1 through 11. A fascinating, famous passage about a woman who is caught in, in the act of adultery and they're trying to execute her. And Jesus intervenes in, in, a, in a, just a, a great story, a, a passage about Jesus is teaching uh, John 8, the beginning of that chapter. Also John 11, 1 through 44. So I don't know how many that is, but there's, there's just, that's, those are all passages where he's interacting, dealing with teaching or healing women. Uh, and then uh, one of the most fascinating pieces here with Jesus is he commissions women to, to be the, the witnesses, to bear testimony of his resurrection. So if you look, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see in uh, the beginning of chapter 28, verses what, 8. Um, so, let's see. So, they, the, the women are in the tomb and they, they see uh, angels saying, you know, 
some things to him and they, they step outside of the tomb. They've come to visit Jesus. And when they step outside of the tomb, so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great trembling. And they ran to bring his disciples word because that's what the angels had uh, told them to do. And, and as they were are running, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus meets them saying, rejoice. So they came, held him by his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So this is a group of women. It's Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. So it's two Marys. And they come to the tomb. Angels tell them to go bear witness. Jesus tells them to go bear witness. Very fascinating because in light of, of a passage in the Mishnah, which is the uh, oral law, which basically was in effect at this time. It's a Pharisaic Judaism, basically, uh, teaching. Well, a lot of times Jesus was up against the Pharisees, but if you look at this, in the in the tractate Shavuot of the Mishnah, chapter 4, there's this, there's this explanation about uh, women bearing testimony where, where basically says that they, they don't count as, as witnesses for legal testimony. But Jesus chooses to have women be the, the, two, the two legal witnesses that he has is, he is resurrected. It's a, it's a fascinating uh, thing. Um, Paul also uh, seems to uh, build on this with that passage we read about how in the church the, the cultural... The gender issues, just like the economic issues and the um, racial issues, are leveled. In that passage we read from Galatians, there's neither slave nor free. Galatians three twenty eight, um, you know, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, but all is Christ. There's a leveling off. Um, you know, Paul. That's Paul. So he he maintains that. Uh, he also talks. Uh, a lot about household relationships and church relationships. Um, and there's a passage in, in Ephesians chapter 5, which many take to be a summary passage of, or introductory passage of his teaching on the summarizing of household and, and church relationships, where he talks about uh, everybody submitting one to another. Um, so in other words, this acknowledgement, this is Galatians, or uh, Ephesians 5, where are we? 26, no, 21, sorry. Yeah, this is submitting to one another in the fear of God. So this is this is about uh, how we live our lives wisely. Uh, there's, there's several things here. And then after that phrase, he goes into talking about marriage relationships, um, child-parent relationships, uh, master-servant relationships in a household-servant kind of thing. Um, so that's Paul. We got Jesus. We got Paul. Um, well, there's also a lot of uh, cues from the the church itself that, that women had um, 
some roles. Uh, there's a possibility, at least, depending on how you how you translate, how you read, that if you look at the lists of people and greetings from epistle to epistle, that you have different things. So let's look at Romans, the end, end of Romans. You have uh, Phoebe, there's this woman named Phoebe, says, I, Romans 16.1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centuria, that could be translated deaconess of the Church of Centuria. It's purely a, a, tr a translator's choice. So it's it's possible that people do uh, wonder if uh, women held offices in the, in these early churches that, that might have been somewhat uh, radical for the culture that the church was in. It was an elevation of women, is the idea. Uh, you have uh, apostles in the same uh, in the same vein. You have a reference to uh, some apostles. What is, where are we? Sixteen. We're dropping down. Uh, well, let's just read verse two. It's talking about Phoebe, that you may receive her in the Lord in a worthy manner of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So Paul's actually commanding, in a sense, the, the Romans to receive this sister, Phoebe. If you drop down, uh, verse 11, um, well, let me just look at my notes. It's verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles. So this one's a little bit, and who were in Christ before me, a little bit shakier ground. But the idea is, that's a, that's a female name, Unia. So it's, she's a female sister. So greet Andronicus and Unia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles. So you could understand that to mean who are apostles, two, two apostles, a male one or a female one. And, and they're, they're, they're well-known apostles, or they're of note among the apostles, or you could understand it to be that among the circle of the apostles of which these people don't belong, these people are held in high esteem. Could go either way. So some have taken it to mean that women were held the, the apostolic role, or were in that role. Uh, let's look at 1 Timothy 3.11. First Timothy three eleven. I have no idea why that. I, I have that written there in my notes. Likewise, so it's talking about deacons. Okay. Ah, okay. This is for deacon. This this should have I should this this is in the wrong spot. This this note this reference should be when I was talking about deacons and we were reading about Phoebe. There's this passage of um, it's a list of qualifications for deacons, and we got First Timothy three verse eleven. Likewise, woman must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. This could be translated wives. It could be translated wives. It could be translated women. So. So it's verses 8 through 13. It's about deacons. 
Um, and you get down to verse 12. And it, uh, verse 11. Likewise, uh, the woman or the wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. If it were to be translated uh, woman, then it, it actually is it's a constructive passage about female deacons, female serving in the church. The idea of how, how the New Testament, how, how Christianity is, is viewing women. Now, there are, uh, of course, uh, other things uh, that the New Testament says about gender roles, both in the church and the home. Um, and <laughs> these ones tend to be more, uh, less popular, I would say, culturally speaking. Um, if you look, why don't we stay right where we are, which is Timothy chapter three. There's two lists for qualifications. Um, one for overseers, one for deacons. If you look uh, at, uh, that was the very same list. Uh, they, they seem to assume uh, male candidates by their statement. Um, like if you look, I, I was just reading verse 11. If you just look down at verse 12, it says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their households well. So <laughs> that seems to be an assumption that it's a male. And so the statement is the husband of one wife rather than the wife of one husband, or could be phrased different ways. Now, of course, some take it to mean that, uh, you know, it just means that they're, they're only married once, they have one spouse. And, you know, when you say the husband of one wife, it also means the same in reverse. And, you know, that could be, uh, could be taken that way, but uh, it doesn't say that, unfortunately. And we do have the phrase in reverse. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, but uh, so what, uh, let's just read, if you look up at the at the overseer part, the bishop, the beginning of the chapter, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. You got that phrase, uh, the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. I think is is how it is in Greek, literally. Uh, same thing happens. So you got that in the deacon list. You get the same thing in Titus, because in Titus you have qualification lists for for elders again, and you have if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife. So you got the fact that the lists that when they're giving qualifications and instruction on it, the the writers of the New Testament seem to be assuming uh, male uh, but uh, male leadership in the church uh, but that's really not that clear right it could be that, those could easily be flipped to, to be interpreted the other way but if you get uh, into uh, the actual nuts and bolts of the worship services you'll see that that uh, there really is gender distinctions. There's, there's very much so are gender-specific commands uh, and how the genders are react, or interacting with each other, relating to each other in the New Testament. Um, so if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, this passage uh, has a lot to say that is 
uh, kind of um, hard for people to swallow. Start in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions which I delivered from just just the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of women is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of women, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so came man also came comes through women, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that a man, if a man has long hair, is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So, seems to be all about how people are dressed, uh, symbolically uh, to show their genders, I think, in the service. Uh, and it's quite a bit about uh, whether or not your heads are covered. Uh, you, you know that if you go to any church, typical church in America, that nobody has their heads covered. Um, so you would think, well, is the church, modern church just disregard this passage? Um, I think that you, it's fair to say the modern church argues a lot about this passage and what it means. Um, I don't think it's totally fair to say they disregard it because there's a lot of wrangling with it, trying to understand how it comes to what what is it, how does it come to bear on us today. Um, I don't think we're going to try to unpack that, but we're just going to show that there's clearly are gender differences in the in instructions uh, in the worship services. That's only one example. Um, we got uh, later on in the same book, just chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, you got chapter 14. You've got a bit, little bit uh, here, 34, 35. Let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Definitely a difference there between men and women. It's also confusing because if you noticed in the passage we just read, he was talking about women praying and prophesying in the church service. Here he's talking about them not uh, speaking. Uh, so what, what's exactly going on? Volumes have been written, have been written on it, but our point is more that there are some gender-specific differences in in how people are conducting themselves in the worship service, according to the New Testament. Uh, Titus, or not Titus, but Timothy, has a similar kind of.
thing in 1 Timothy 2. Um, you have uh, verses 8 through 15. I therefore desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So it's a very uh, interesting passage. So it's about, it seems somewhat similar to the 1 Corinthians 11 passage about dress and how people are dressed in these, in the, in the public gathering of the church um, and how they're behaving. Men to be praying without wrath, women to be adorned modestly. Verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will not be, she will be saved in childbearing if she continue, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Uh, and, and he's linking it back to the creation account, similar to how he, he did in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 11. He, he linked it back to, theologically, back to the Old Testament, um, linked the present instructions he was giving. Um, again, th this, this, this kind of passage, the Corinthians passages I was reading, is where you, you'll get a position to arise, which has the, the position that women shouldn't uh, be uh, exercising elder authority in a church, because Paul's saying, I don't permit women to teach or to hold, hold authority over a man. Um, there's several churches that that's a kind of a doctrinal position, denominations in America, at least uh, several that don't hold that. Um, then they have to deal, but they have to grapple with these passages and explain them in different ways. Like, uh, you know, they might say, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, they might say, well, that's Paul speaking, not the inspired word of God. That's Paul's opinion. You know, um, there, there is a little bit of precedent because in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul actually does that. He says, here's something that's not from the Holy Spirit. It's just my opinion about instructions about marriage. But um, any rate, uh, what, 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 what else we got here? So there's also, that's gender specific commands for worship services, but then there's uh, also some gender specificity for um, relationships in the household. Uh, several passages of, which show that. Um, Ephesians, uh, so we got relationships in the church, then we've got some household stuff. So what do we got in Ephesians? Starting in Ephesians, you'll see how the, the commands, he, he starts off with what he had read earlier, that command submitting to one another in the fear of God, and then he moves into gender-specific spe teaching. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm in verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. 
Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are all members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um... Again, it's being tied to, tied theologically to um, the doctrine of the church. So how how the there are gender specific commands uh, for relationship between man and woman in the home is theologically embedded in the doctrine of the church. Just like how there was gender specific commands for the how men and women behaved in the church was embedded in doctrinally embedded in the creation account. Um, that's the kind of thing Paul does throughout his writings. But um, It makes it really hard. Why do I, why do I keep honing in on that? That kind of thing makes it very hard to uh, argue a cultural, from a cultural argument that, um, okay, these were cultural things, or these are things, these are matters of culture in that culture. It was to be in the culture from which the Bible was sprung. It was written. Things were to be done that way. But in our culture, which is different, we should ha we have a different way of doing things. It's hard to make a cultural argument when the these passages are so intricately connected and tied into uh, core doctrines of the faith, like the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of, or the, the the creation event. Right? I mean, how can you how can you argue? that what was true of the creation event for people in the first century is not true of the creation event for people in the 21st century. You actually, I don't think you can. So it's, it becomes hard to make the cultural argument because of how Paul sets it up. Um, there are several passages very similar to this one. Uh, Colossians is a bit shorter. Paul's basically saying the same thing in the, uh, as he, as he just said, but in, in just two verses, Colossians 3. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fit, fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter towards them. Uh, you get some of this in uh, Timothy and Titus. Uh, we already uh, looked at... Well, let's just look. We already looked at... Uh, but see, uh, now I'm confused. Well, yeah, I'm definitely confused. I'm in the wrong. I must need to be in Second Timothy. Second Timothy. Um. No, it's not Timothy. So, 
I have no idea what this reference is. Not a clue. Not a clue. So we'll skip that. Um, because I'm confused. But there's a reference in Titus that I have written down as Timothy that I don't understand what it is. So let's just go to Titus chapter 2 where you've got the relationships kind of spelled out here. Um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith, in love and patience. The older women likewise that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is in an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort. All right, so then it goes on to talk about uh, the relationship between slaves and masters. So that's the relationships, the male, the husband-wife kind of relationships in the home there. You see, you see that there's, I mean, this, you know, this is not popular at all in a culture where uh, our culture definitely wants to break, I would say, from the model of, you know, men being uh, people who are out in the workplace and women being at home. But, but this is actually saying to older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, workers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Homemakers is how that workers at home is translated here, but it's just it's just an interesting thing. Is it cultural? Is it not? It's a, it's a, you know, some some somewhat up for grabs. I mean, there's not nothing there really embedded in a, you know a core doctrine of the faith. Uh, that's that's a, a lot. There's another passage in Peter, which is interesting. It's not Paul anymore. This is Peter. So mo everything we've just been reading was Paul. So it's nice to get flavor from another of the apostles. Peter, First Peter three. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, and even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observed your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be in the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid of any error. So, backing it up to Abraham and Sarah's relationship as a, as a model, it's kind of interesting. Uh, 
So what what could be said maybe about um, some of these uh, these things like you know there's stuff about women's hairstyles and women's jewelry and that's really hard to think that the Bible's telling you how to have your hair and how to wear your jewelry or it certainly would be hard to accept um, so how could we apply that in ways that um, don't uh, require that or how can we under interpret the passage in those ways and I, I, I don't have much to say but that uh, you know these passages are offensive and it's really hard to you know there's really three things to, to be um, I would say uh, to there's something I would call convenience editing that's where we kind of change our understanding of what the text says because it's convenient for us uh, and there's another thing that I might call uh, you know how it's difficult to apply um, and that that becomes true when you look at those passages about the, the braided hair and the jewelry because there's commands given to men and women like side by side like the one we just when we read uh, that men everywhere pray lifting up holy hands so if you're to argue that women don't uh, don't need to now because it's you know that was a cultural thing don't need to be concerned about having the, the braided hair or the, the jewelry and gold jewelry and fine apparel it's hard to to do if you do that you you have to equally apply your argument to the thing that's together the, the man part which is to pray everywhere lifting up holy hands and then you'd say i don't know what you would say maybe men don't should not, don't need to lift up their hands when they pray but you certainly don't want to apply it and say men should pray everywhere because that would be inconsistent with teaching elsewhere in the New Testament about pray without ceasing. So, it, how how it's how they get applied? I just I don't I don't want to say much other than it's very difficult to try to justify not doing a plain reading of a text. It doesn't mean that you you can't do it or you shouldn't do it, but it is difficult because it's, it's it's difficult to justify. It's difficult to apply well without cherry picking in your application and it's, it's very difficult to protect your own self from the phenomena of convenience editing I, I think the church really has done some convenience editing uh, you know if you look back at Vatican II in the 60s that's where the Catholic Church decided uh, to do away with head coverings they used to require head coverings from the first Corinthians 11 passage we read for women in their services but they were done away with and they, they made that update because they felt like now yeah, maybe it's time to come to grips with the modern world you know be relevant no no women wear head coverings anywhere else why should we be doing it in the church but then you see convenience takes it the, the problem of convenience edit, editing this idea of convenience editing it takes it and it just goes with whatever cultural pressure you change your understanding. So then you get churches that very quickly came out with uh, female ordination because of cultural pressures from a feminist movement. Then not much longer, what was that? was in the 70s and 80s, female ordination. Not much longer after that in the 
90s and certainly in the first decade of the 2000s, you get the uh, homosexual ordination from just from the cultural pressures. And, you know, then you have to do you have to really do some monkey work with with uh, text, certainly for the latter one, uh, especially New Testament texts to um, to do those kind of ordinations. But uh, it looks to me like it's a convenience editing and I could be unfair in saying that, but, you know, and I'm, I'm prepared to be accused of that. But I, I just think it's very difficult to, uh, a justify because, because of how those, those much of these teachings are embedded in the, uh, creation account and things difficult to justify, difficult to apply and certainly difficult to, to protect against, going too far um but at any rate um all i can say is that uh pretty much that's about it uh there are many uh other things that could be said about uh gender from the bible or uh even male and female relationships. Uh, we really looked at uh, very uh, few. Um, and I think I might have found the passage that I had been looking for in Timothy earlier when I was confused. So maybe we can just read that and then we can call it, a, call it quits. This is a parallel passage to the Titus passage I read in uh, Titus 2. It's in Timothy 5. Um, not speedy. I'm not a speedy flipper. So I'm slow at turning. That's probably what adds lots of time to these videos, why they get so bloated. Um, but if you look in 1 Timothy 5, um, yeah, this is the parallel. That's just what I was looking for. This, this, this very much parallels Titus 2. Do not rebuke older men, but exhort him as a father, and older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let not a widow under sixty years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. There's that phrase in reverse, that phrase that showed up in the ordination qualifications for bishops and deacons, one woman, man, wife of one Oh, the husband of one wife. Well, this isn't in reverse. The wife of one man, or the um, the one man woman, uh, well reported of for good works, and it's also a qualification list. It's qualifications for being considered uh, a widow to be supported by the church on the church's, you know, to live off of the church. Well reported of for good works. If she has been brought has brought up children. If she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, 
but refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. And if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened. Then it may relieve those who are really widows. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, and the rest may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. All right, I probably read too much there, but the idea is that that passage is very parallel to Titus 2, where he was giving instructions, household role instructions, uh, about which are very countercultural, about the, the elder women teaching the younger women to be homemakers, uh, to raise children. Um, same idea here, if you look at verse 14, uh, I desire younger women, younger widows, marry, bear children, manage the household, give no opportunity for the adversary. Um, yeah, well, we're going to close. There, There is a lot that could be said about gender. There's a lot how you could talk for, for a long time, really preach on any one of the passages that I, I brought up. I just brought up a bunch of passages and maybe didn't do a good thing because I didn't do a whole lot of explaining. But I think overall point in summary, the Bible really sets up that there's two genders. The variance from that is, is really considered, is, is depicted as part of the brokenness in this world and that that is going to one day be healed. And the gospel is the beginning of that, accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, for those two genders that the Bible sets up, the Bible does have specific things to say to or towards each gender. And those specifics uh, are in the areas, basically, of uh, the home and home relationships or marriage, marriage relationships, and in the church, how men and women relate in the church. That's the bulk of the instruction, if not all of it, actually. That's what the Bible is saying. It doesn't think it touches on, I don't know that it touches on any other sphere. So there are differences in its instruction in those two spheres. And the, the important thing, I think, that, that can get lost when you do look at those instructions and they look really harsh, but I think the important thing that can get lost is the idea that the Bible does a lot to elevate the position of women, and it's very countercultural in its day. Jesus was, even some of the writings of Paul were. Um, and don't don't lose sight of that. That the, the, there's no harshness towards women in, allowed for in Christianity, and there is. Uh, an equality of of uh, of um, you know submission one to another, but there are different roles, both in the home and the church, that are pretty pretty well 
pretty extensively uh, laid out. Um, so that's a summary. Um, and that's all for now. See you next time. Thanks for listening.